Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now on to the show. I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Unfortunately, my lovely co-host, Sunny, is away today. I just read an incredible book that really opened up my eyes. It is called Understanding E-Carceration, Electronic Monitoring, the Surveillance Date, and the Future of Mass Incarceration. It is by James Kilgore, who joins us now. Hello, James. Uh, Good morning, Lisa. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you on. I really, I learned so much from your book, you know, just before we started taping, I mentioned that. So my best friend from college is in prison and I just, it's just so horrific. And I've learned a lot about the prison system through that and also through other reading, you know, through him. And, you know, it's interesting when I first saw your book, I thought, oh, is this understanding it? Maybe it's better. And I've read it and I was like, no, that's, that's not at all what he's saying. So tell us why you wrote the book and what you're actually saying, because you say a lot and it's very important information. Well, I I mean, I wrote the book, I suppose, largely because I spent a year on an electronic monitor after spending six and a half years in prison. And when I came home on the second day, you know, they came and put this ankle shackle. I call it a shackle, not a bracelet. It's not jewelry. Um, They put this ankle shackle on my leg. And then my parole agent told me I'd only be allowed out of the house from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. So I began to wonder who, who, who who made up the rules for this. And of course, who makes money off of it? And probably more importantly, in the long run, where is this device going? This is 2009. But even then, it was tracking my location. But that was the early days of smartphones and laptop computers. So I could only imagine that these devices were going to get more and more invasive. So when I tried to find research or any kind of evaluations or assessments of this to show that it had any positive impact on anyone, I couldn't find anything. And the research I did was talking to people that had been on the monitor, because I believe that our greatest data sources, the lived experience of people, you know, reflected through their own analysis. And so um, um, almost everyone said, well, you know, they just make your house into a jail, into a prison. Um, it's not an alternative to incarceration. It's just another form of incarceration. And so you're not really free until you're, as long as you're on the, on the, on the monitoring device. So, you know, I've, I've been collecting stories for years from people about this and also beginning to look at some of the other technologies, which I put under the broad heading of e-carceration, that is using technology to deprive people of their liberty. So under that, we find license plate readers, facial recognition, voice recognition, risk assessment tools, drones, weaponized databases, the whole picture. 
and the data that they snatch from us out of our out of our daily life and later on gets used against us particularly if we come through the criminal legal system or if we come through other systems of uh of oppression or dis or marginalization that that have us targeted for surveillance you know within the first i think it's the first or second page you acknowledge your white privilege you acknowledge it again very you know quickly like in the next few pages you're talking about when the parole officer came to your house for the first time and he was you know being a jerk but you said quote but at least he skipped the part where he tore my house apart looking for drugs and had me pee in a cup white privilege again and for you know for us that's you know, fantastic, because here on Active Allyship is more than a hashtag. We want people to understand that this is real. And we've got white privilege doesn't exist. We all have it hard. Yeah, you really don't. It's not the same. And so I just want to, I was really glad to read that in your book. And also, I mean, you go into different movements and and, in the prison involving, you know, different black communities. It's just really well done. But I wanted to thank you for doing that. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I mean, in prison, you know, it, it is a leveler. Um, I mean, we all wear the same clothes, live in the same same size cell. You don't get a bigger cell. Oh, sure. I mean, out in the world, though. Right. right. But, I, but I'm just saying, but I'm just saying even there, but there's still privileges. I mean, you know, there's still jobs that certain people get because they're white, et cetera, et cetera. Other get access to other resources. So it, it, it never it never really goes it never really goes away. And I think even when I was on electronic monitor, because I'm white and also because I'm, you know, I'm educated. I don't have, you know, I don't have 12 white supremacist tattoos on my face. Um, I get treated different uh, on the basis of that as well. Yeah. You know, I want to talk more about the deprivation of liberty because I think a lot of people think, well, what's the big deal? So you can only go out from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., which to me is completely insane. But then the rest of the time you can watch TV or go on the Internet or this and that. So, like, how is this such a deprivation? This is why they have to read your book. But how would you kind of put that in a nutshell? Well, I think when you come out of prison or even when you're on pretrial release, if you're facing a case, um, what you need is access to resources and supports. You need resources that are going to take you down a different path than the one that got you into prison. So staying at home, I mean, for people who say who are on pretrial release, that house may be where all the things happened that landed them in prison. That may be where all the people are that were their, you know, crimes in terms of the whole process. And you're not only making them live there, but you're making them stay there 24-7. And I think that goes doubly for, particularly for for women who may be the victims of, of uh, domestic abuse. Then you they get sent into the house where they've been abused and they can't even flee because they because they're under they're under house arrest. So I think uh, and and people get this idea and I think judges in particular suffer from this. They think when they put somebody on house arrest that they're putting them in, you know, a four bedroom house in suburbia with a big flat screen TV and unlimited internet and unlimited phone and a, and a and a bedroom where they can just live their life by themselves. That's not the that's not the existence of the bulk of people who come through the prison system come from, you know, oppressed communities, poor communities, disproportionately black, brown, indigenous, LGBTQ plus, and they they struggle to survive and they struggle even more to survive when they can't even get out and get a job, when they can't even go to the store and buy and buy some milk, when they can't 
particularly for people who have been in prison a long time, they can't even be out in the society to get used to what does it feel like to be on a street in 2022 compared to 2012, compared to you know 2002. Uh, I mean, it's just a completely different universe. I work in a reentry program in my community, and I'm dealing with people that come home and say, well, they want to go get a newspaper to look for the one ads to get a job. And I'm going, you know, I have to explain to them, well, yeah, that's not the world you're living in now. But but they've never been introduced in prison to that technology even to be able to cope with it when they get on the outside. Yeah, and how are you supposed to find a job from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m.? Right, I mean, don't they right. want people to re-enter and get back in the workforce and get back in the community? I guess they don't. I mean, that's the question, right? Like, oh, what do they really want? They just want to be punitive. It's about punishment. And I think we have to recognize that. And it masquerades as reform. It masquerades as being more gentle than prison. And look, I don't want to, I'm never going to tell someone who's sitting in jail or in prison, well, you don't want to come out and be on an electronic monitor because it's terrible. Uh, that's, you know, you, you have to do what's best for you, given the limited choices that you have. But you also need to be aware that this that these devices put different restrictions on you. And for myself, as somebody who's an abolitionist who campaigns to change the system, I'm not going to fight for people to be on monitors. I'm going to fight to eliminate monitors. I'll fight to reduce the harm that are done by monitors if I can't get rid of them. But I'm never going to stand up and say, we need electronic monitoring. That's going to solve our problem. That's, you know, that, that that's, that's, that's basically just uh, regurgitating the system. Yeah, that's true. You know, you write in the book that uh, there are four major forms of incarceration. They overlap and intersect. You've got risk assessment and prediction, identifiers, authenticators, location tracking, and the omnipotent eye. We only have about seven minutes, but if you just want to talk a little bit about those. Some are pretty obvious. I mean, surveillance cameras are pretty obvious. The omnipotent eye is pretty obvious. Even identifiers, I think people are aware that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, with fingerprints, iris, scans and so forth are a way of getting your your biometrics into a database. But I think people are a little less aware of things like risk assessment tools, which gather all kinds of data from your life and then put a risk as, uh, on you. I mean, we're familiar with this when we apply for credit. You know, we get a credit score. That's a risk assessment. Okay, maybe it's not as sinister in the world of credit, but if you're trying to apply for housing, if you're trying to apply for a job and they're putting you through some risk assessment tool, if you're trying to be released from prison and they're putting a risk assessment on you that's taking into account all of the things in your past, you're going to be a high risk if you if you come from a you know low-income black family uh, where your your father might have been incarcerated, maybe maybe you use substance you use substances when you were young, whatever uh, you know so-called criminal activity you've been involved in, that's all going to add up to block you from doing whatever you need to do, whether that's being released from prison, whether it's whether you're on an electronic monitor or not on an electronic monitor, whether you're going to be hired in a job, whether you're going to be accepted into a program in school, and all this data, who controls this? It's Amazon, it's Google, it's Microsoft. All this sits on the cloud, the super hard drive in the sky where they process this data and then, you know, what I call weaponize it against people to, to block them from, from opportunity. Now, if you're, if you're a millionaire, you're not so worried about that data. But if you're, if you're, if you're scrambling around to survive, you're really worried about it. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about sociologist uh, Robert Martinson and tell us about uh, his contributions in the debate looking at uh, the liberation movement inside prisons. 
Oh, well, back in the 70s, Robert Martinson, you know, did these studies of, um, of you know, programs, both in prison and post-prison, and basically came to the conclusion that nothing worked, there was nothing we could do, so we should just throw up our hands and, and give up. And so that that basically triggered a whole move inside prisons to stop job training, to stop higher education, to stop all the things that could really help people, you know, transform while they're in prison, use those years to not only reflect, but build a skill set so they could be able to cope with what they were going to face when they come on the outside. So the last prison I was in in California, they had a multi-million dollar uh, institutional cooking school. They had a multi-million dollar auto mechanic school. They had a multi-million dollar horticultural training place, and they shut it all down. They didn't use any of it just wasted all that taxpayers money and so we so all we had is pull up bars and you know and chess boards and and TVs that's that's basically what we had and a little bit of basic education but there was nothing there that was going to help people when they got out yeah, that's what's so heartbreaking. You know, my friend who's in, he really needs some mental health work. I'm just being honest. And he admits it. He gets 15 minutes of therapy a month. He really needs like a lot of help. And it's just so sad. He's like, no, we just sit around, watch TV, or like you said, and lift weights. And he said, a lot of times I just listen to NPR on the radio for the day, you know, and there's no freaking rehab going on. It's no, such bullshit. And the same thing happens when you come out. They put you in these programs like anger management, parenting, which are bogus classes run by people that are only interested, that are also part of that punitive mentality. They charge you to take them and you violate your parole if you don't take the classes, oh, but wow. they're totally, but they're totally useless. They're not, they're not really geared to, to provide people with the kind of insights they need. And running our, running our reentry program, we find it very difficult to locate People who, who can offer counseling and, and 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 therapies who have the what we call cultural competence, who have the sensitivity to be able to connect to the experience that people have coming out of prison. Because you can't you can't take somebody who's just trained in university, just graduated from a school of social work, throw them in a room with somebody who's just done 25 years in prison and think there's going to be an immediate connect. There's not. We use peer mentoring. All the people in our organization, we've been incarcerated, so we use the we we become the sources of support, but we don't have some of the you know more high level skills that are needed to deal with the serious issues that people come out of prison with. Well, tell us a little bit about your program, and then also in the last few minutes, what can we do? I mean, it sounds like what you're doing is great, but it, it's so overwhelming, and I want people to feel like they can do something. Well, I mean, our program we started out myself and one other person, formerly incarcerated person in the community, we decided we'd we'd run a drop-in center and we but our goal really was to build an organization of formerly incarcerated people. I'm in Champaign, Urbana, Illinois. So we have an organization called First Followers. We I'll admit we sat for the first year in that drop-in center kind of looking at each other and every once in a while somebody'd come in. But gradually over the years, you know, we 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 talked to people, we built an organization, we now have a transition house, we run courses for 18 wow. to 20 four-year-olds who are impacted by the criminal legal system. We also do a lot of advocacy work in the community. We go to city council meetings, county boards. We try to educate people about the situation that people face when they come home from prison and what kind of things need to be done to help them. So I think that's, I think that's what, there's a lot of people across the country, formerly incarcerated people who are involved in doing this. So I think that's, that's an important intervention. I mean, I always say that, you know, you you need to intervene at a local level. Most of this criminal legal stuff is not, 
doesn't happen in Washington. It doesn't even happen. It, some of it may happen in your state capital, but it, wherever you are, you got a jail. You got you, you know you got policing. You got you got underfunded mental health programs. I'm sure you got underfunded and pr probably badly conceived uh, programs to deal with s substance use. There's a whole range of things that are lacking in a community. So you need to try to identify those and mobilize around them and also to identify people who are impacted by those issues to be part of those campaigns because it's you you can't run campaigns about people without having those people be a, be part of those campaigns. Yes, 100%. I wish I had more time. If you want to come back, we would love to have you. Sonny would have loved to have spoken with you. Again, the book is Understanding E-Carceration, Electronic Monitoring, The Surveillance State, and I don't know why I can't say the word, and The Future of Mass Incarceration. James, how do we find out all about you on social media and get your wonderful book? Okay, I'm, I mean, I'm on Twitter at W-A-A-Z-N-1. Um, uh, we have a website, challengingecarceration.org. Um, you can also order the book there uh, or through the New Press, which is the publisher. Um, I mean, obviously, you can get through Amazon, too, but rather you're going to do it through the publisher. Um, yeah, and, and, um, uh, and, and people can also email me at waazn1 at gmail.com. So I'm happy to to hear from people in Grand Rapids. Happy to uh, happy to come back. Great. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important, and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also, follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.